Welcome to Deep Color, the oral history project and podcast series that features artists and arts professionals discussing their work, ideas, and lives, offering listeners a forthright and unique understanding about the process, experiences, and people behind the artistic pursuit. My name is Joseph Hart. I produce and facilitate this series. Each recording is casual, long form, and unscripted. Deep Color is independently produced and a free resource for listeners. Please help sustain this project by becoming an official patron through the support page at deepcolorpodcast.com. There are very reasonable donation tiers for supporters to choose from and feel good about. In doing this, you acknowledge the time and labor that goes into creating Deep Color and appreciate its value. You can also help by sharing Deep Color within your community and by rating and reviewing wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for helping to make these conversations about art and the creative process possible. This episode profiles Jim Drain. Jim is a multidisciplinary artist that makes otherworldly sculpture, furniture, and installation-based works. He is also one of the original founders of Fort Thunder, the influential live-work performance space in Providence, Rhode Island during the 1990s, and a member of Force Field, the celebrated noise band and artist collective. In Drain's current practice, he uses brightly colored textiles, salvaged fabrics, found objects, and different types of knitting, weaving, and sewing as collage elements assembled over steel armatures. Some works are strangely anthropomorphic or resemble satellite-like pinatas or monuments to an abstracted dream state. Other sculptures read as playful totems and shamanistic entities covered in a shag of fabric shrapnel, tassels, and woven grids. Often surrounding Jim's sculptures are pattern-filled murals and tapestries, adding another layer of glitch and optic experience. Threaded through all of Jim's work is a reverence for handiwork and craft, a sense of joy and wonder, and ideas related to how materials and form can harmonize towards utopic transformation. This conversation was recorded remotely. I was in Brooklyn, New York, which is the unceded land of the Lenape people, Jim was in his studio in Pawtucket, Rhode Island, which is the unceded land of the Narragansett people. Which I think is helpful. Um, one of the interesting things about this project is the built-in paradox. You and I are both visual communicators, mm-hmm. uh, yet we are here trying to find words and spoken language to describe what we're usually more comfortable doing with, with form and color and objects and images. Um, but I do think it's a good exercise for artists to figure out how to talk around and through and about their work. Um, I just think context is a really great thing, uh, particularly for artwork, because there's a lot of misconception and uh, misunderstanding about the world of visual art out there. Um, well, today so, was my yeah, go ahead. first day of high school. <laughs> so uh, you had a room, I, I had first period and a lot of the students were new and were meeting in person and no one wanted to say anything. And so you're like standing there, like uh, you might as well have like a microphone and a, and a cane being like, all right, everybody. <laughs> I know you're this like is what we're show. doing. Yeah. yeah. You <laughs> put on a show for the end. But it's also like really encouraging them to, like, you know, I had them basically make a mind map and, you know, it's like you're making it up on the spot. 
um, but have them discuss, you know, like not just see what they, you know, see, have them see what they're doing is important and be able to talk. Like we looked at everyone's together and say like, Oh, this is the difference that I'm seeing. And I think I'm someone who as a coping mechanism <laughs> turned to visual arts to be able to communicate. And now it's, it's really fun to like have that challenge of how to talk about the visual arts verbally um, mm-hmm. as we had to do last year online. Yeah. Um, yeah. I also think it's fun to find new words or, or new ways of packaging the idea uh, in sentence form so that it lands for a certain type of student or a certain type of art viewer. I think that's yeah a really great thing. You know, I think it was 2007. I, and I don't know if you remember this, but I interviewed you for a magazine project that I was right. involved with. And I asked you then to make a to-do list for your artwork, which is something I asked my students to, to do as an exercise. I think mm-hmm. that's pretty cool. Like set some intentions for the, the, the idea or the, or the work of art. Um, and I wanted to read back the list of words that you shared with me. And I want to, uh, see if you would add or delete anything from it. And I think, I think it's a wonderful list and it still holds up. Revenge, righteousness, humble, bitter herbs, licorice, banana peels, riffs, salt, golden leaves, handprint, whale tooth, caterpillar, lightning and thunder, flesh and hot water. And as I prepared to speak with you today, I, was, I, I had that listed in the back of my head and I'm looking at images of your work and I think it still lands. Does it still land for you, most of that stuff? Would you take anything off? Yeah, it makes me want to cry, actually. It's so <laughs> intense. I, I mean, it sounds like a potion. And I love that uh, imagining all these different elements together. And like whale tooth really is such an interesting word. <laughs> and flash. And it just was, there were such evocative words. And at the time, I think I was, well, I definitely was, trying to make work that didn't require mediation. You know, I, I love a good label and I love like an awesome caption, you know, it really, and biography is really great, you know, reading about Frida Kahlo and like what is going into the work and where she was in her life. You know, I grew up not knowing that she was in pain most of her life and it just changed the way I saw her paintings. And so biography is important, but, um, the work I was interested in, in making was to have that instant read where you react bodily to sculpture and to drawing and painting and photography or performance and that being the center point and um, yeah sort of like hearing with your eyeballs and the, the kind of synesthesia that happens when you look at work um, yeah that goes beyond language and I think that comes from um, my time with, with like everyone at Fort Thunder, um, that sort of distrust of language was really like so central to that space where, um, the comics that were made often didn't have text or language and, you know, or the posters that were were trying to express information were gobbledygook and really hard to read. And it wasn't about finding coding necessarily. You know, it wasn't about gatekeeping, um, 
but it was to challenge the viewer to like have them have the visual experience be more than just like um um something that stays in your eyeballs yeah i want to i want to get into uh fort thunder more deeply down down the road i'm glad you brought it up though as i know your work to back up a little bit, the first stuff of yours I ever saw were comics. Uh, they were drawings, and they were on the back of the student newspaper that, at the school you we went to. I don't know if you remember those way back when. Uh, and then I don't think I saw your three-dimensional work in your sculpture uh, until later in the early 2000s. But I wondered if we could talk about the arc of your work and how it sort of developed along the way, because... You make sculpture, you have done installation work, you have done performance, uh, you make two-dimensional work. You just finished recently a wonderful mosaic mural up in the Bronx. Uh, you make furniture, uh, and there's even some wearables in there. I don't know if you show that stuff as art, but you make sweaters and you have like kind of like more like domestic type projects I know in your world. If we could pull out a connected tissue for all these different things does anything come to mind my mom passed away when i was 17 and then i had my senior year still at school and i think um she was sick for eight years and so i think when you're a teenager that has like a parent that is sick and um my dad was at the time kind of absent so there was a lot of i have four siblings and so we really kind of like it was like a team effort to like keep the ship afloat. Um, but I think when she passed, I was like, "All right, fuck it, I'm just gonna go to art school." Like, I'm just you know, like I'm not gonna try to go to a liberal arts school. Um, even though I really loved, I had a good public education and I loved um, learning and I really loved reading and I can imagine being an English major somewhere. Um, but and then when I got to RISD, I was like, okay, I'm, I'm all in, I'm going to be a painter. And, I, you know, I went to, saw a Basquiat show with Warhol at the, the new, um, at the time, like the Warhol museum. And it was just like, blew me away about what was possible. Um, but for me, like going into sculpture was about, I was like, I'm, I'm an artist. I don't want to limit myself and I don't want to like, just be like, um, one kind of thing. Like, my idea growing up was like, I could do everything and um, sculpture somehow was like that way to do it. Um, you know, you're 19 years old and deciding what you want to do for the rest of your life. So um, at that time, it was like, that made the most sense. And it, it's held true. A lot of ways I, I looked to artists like Polly Affelbaum and I, I talked to her about like how she defines herself and she says like, she's a not a hybrid artist or it's a cross disciplinarian. There's a term that she's like, I only like this way to talk about it, but it, both of those things are true. It's like, you're, there's no one discipline that I'm like, this is my jam. And like, I'm going to stick with it. Yeah. That artistic identity piece is important, right? Cause we don't necessarily, like you're saying, want to be kind of boxed in or asked to like define ourselves uh, super specifically, because I think that fluidity is really a wonderful space to make stuff in, right? Um, and that sounds like that's what you're talking about. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I, I could go on this forever. Um, but to go back to like 
my education at RISD. Like at the time I was looking at the person that really was so informative was Kiki Smith and seeing like her work and that you're just like, I was like blushing when I saw her work because it was so evocative and like the body was like so on display and I didn't know that that was possible. Um, And so that really confirmed like why I wanted to go into sculpture. But then like Paul McCarthy and um, Mike Kelly really gained prominence at the, you know, 97, 98. And Mike Kelly's crossover into music and into performance and sculpture. I was like, oh, there's a space that I can imagine like what we do, like um, that I'm not bringing to school, but I'm just like doing as a fun thing with friends can sort of be, you know, be something that I could pursue and whether we call it art or not, it wasn't so important, but it was like um, a way to be around people that I really admired and saw as mentors and were doing things that were super exciting in music and, and art. So um, that led into, you know, getting into force field and doing stuff collaboratively with people. And um, I think Mike Kelly opened up that space, but I, I think from my perspective now, like I kind of see, his artwork differently but it at the time it was like a a door opened when that seemed like a possibility for me i think when i look at your work some of the ideas that come to mind are craft and handiwork um the idea of connection through like a stitch or a weave and how these different components rely on each other to make a broader uh whole or a broader idea yeah. Um, and then color, obviously, for me, is an important aspect of your work. And I want to talk about color more specifically uh, uh, deeper into the conversation. Uh, but let's let's get into, you know, the importance of the weave and the stitch and that the, the connection between these different objects, different materials and, and how that all comes together for you. Yeah, I mean, textiles as a discipline really brought together all these different ways of thinking and working into one place. And I think um, after school uh, really kind of united so many different ideas and ways of working into one thing. And it was because of force field and um, what Matt and Nara were doing with costuming. Um, But more, yeah, the, like I was, in this space where everyone would had sort of like such talent and um, they could do, th- they could draw comics so much better than I could and print so much and drum and like um, make music so much better than I could. And like knitting was something that I could bring that um, no one else was doing. And um, at the time, like I didn't know like the historical background behind knitting and sculpture. And since then I've sort of, caught up through like Janelle Porter's exhibitions. Um, her work, her show at fiber and sculpture, um, was really like such an important show for me to see. Um, it really like brought so many artists to the forefront and of just as seeing textiles as a form of thinking and, and making as a, um, that sort of knit and the, the weave as, um, both conceptually, but all, like as an intellectual pursuit. And that, for me, it was like kind of more of an intuitive thing of like, 
in the beginning of like seeing how my brain needed structure after school, like school provided that, but then um, being able to knit and build form that had like really specific rules were, was really important. Um, But the craft community itself like is so welcoming and um, you know, I was living in Providence and going to New York to see exhibitions and really interested in like, all right, how do artists show in galleries or like, what is, how does that work? And so I was seeing shows and, um, and at the same time knitting and, and sort of, um, it just like helped me sort of bring ideas together into one place. It, it was like much more of an open community than what I was seeing in like seeing in in art spaces. Like it felt like I think Fourth Thunder had this ethos of like yes, the doors are open, and everyone's welcome, and like the craft community has that too. Like oh, you need to learn this special stitch. Like I'll show you how to do it, and like spend two hours with the knitting needle to do, to do it with you. It was like there's such generosity in that space. Yeah, I like that word generosity as it connects to the world of craft and um, working with textiles. I, I I sense that as an outside observer. Uh, the other piece that I, I would put in there is this like sense of care with the work and the sense of care of the materials. Yeah, and the sense of touch. Uh, you know, touch and handiwork go hand in hand. It's a terrible pun right there, but uh, <laughs> uh, I wonder if you talk about care in your work and caring about your work. You know, so many artists just like slap it. I don't give a fuck. It's just a thing, you know, but you're the opposite. And I mean, there's plenty of artists out there that care about their work, but I sense such a tremendous amount of care in your work. Can you speak to that a little bit? It's funny. Like I see someone like Jordan Nassar who does um, needlepoint and like, there's such care in that work and such. Their work is incredible. You see the time that goes into it. And I think, one thing that the fiber show that Janelle put together, you see many like Alan Shields, like the care that goes into that. But like there was a point where like Jack Smith was becoming like being brought out in conversation in like 2008. And the way he was described was like, you know, there'd be performance and he'd be showing a film and be cutting it up as she, as he went. And I tried to bring that spontaneity to my sculpture and like carelessness and it didn't fucking work. Like I couldn't do it. Like I did it badly. And I think for me, like I, that, that hand and the time and the slowness was really important. And um, I'm actually really trying to slow things down even more, which doesn't make, it, it makes it, hard to like have a productive studio but like i it's that balance of like how do you make things that show that time and care um which i think jordan's like a great example of someone who who's like making is so prolific but also is so careful that time and care piece i think is definitely in your work as well you talked about having problems with spontaneity in your work which i I tend to understand it seems like there's a system to, to realizing these works. And this leads me to ask you if, like, if there's a plan before you begin, um, and that might be informed by the materials that you collect. Um, because I know you use a lot of clothing and found fabrics and, uh, you sort of upcycle stuff. 
can you talk about how you begin one of your works? For a long time, it was like there would be like a, a deadline or a show. And so like that determined the speed and <laughs> how much you were going to get done. And, you know, like you're making something for a specific context. Yeah, those outside pressures. Um, what I'm trying to do is just make work because I want to make it and not have those pressures be the limiting force. And um, it's hard because, the, but the thing that then drives it, the work is like the work itself. And there's something kind of idealistic about that, but like, um, I feel like that's been in the studio the past year. Is there any sort of drawing process before these begin in terms of like figuring out the sort of baseline shape of this object you might want to make? Or is it really just kind of like go and build and stretch and pull? Cause I know there's armatures under everything and like armatures yeah. for me are a form of drawing yeah. um, that, that you can build on top of. So I'm just wondering like where, where, where like, I guess that skeleton begins. I'll talk about like one specific show, like Nina's sure. show um, in Miami. I'm not the best welder. And so a friend of mine helped me do some welding and he's like, so kind of, what do you want? And I was like, uh, he just had all this extra stock. And so what he didn't realize was that he was making my drawings. We were making them together. And I was like, I think I want a sculpture kind of like this big and like taking up this much volume. And he was like, all right. And, uh, and I had, you know, several of those forms. And then, then from there I was like, okay, I think this needs to be a sale. It just like helped articulate like, I knew the space and how I wanted to approach it. And so that really kind of then sort of determined the, the figurative elements of it. I don't really reflect on that very often, but like I, it's nice to work off of parameters and like, um, you know, whether you're using clothing, it has a specific parameter, you're building a garment, like um, it's, yeah, it's nice to use those sort of existing skeletons. Yeah. That show it at, um, at Nina Johnson down in Miami. Yeah, it's funny you said sail because I I picked up on this motif of a sail in some of those works. You know, there's figurative aspects. I mean, one of the sails is actually looks like a sweater built into the piece, you know, with the arms kind of going out. Mm -hmm. You know, there's 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 body in your work too, and I yeah. think you've used the word you like to or you've used the phrase making body facing work. Can you speak to that a little bit? This idea of the body not only the body of the work that you're making, but how the viewer and their body kind of interacts with your stuff. Yeah. <clears throat> the show before that was at Natalie Card in New York, and there was Brian Dwatkur uh, wrote about it and like talked about the sculpture being kind of like totems that he would see on the side of the highway for someone who died. You know, you like slap things together to honor them and like, that is probably like the best thing anyone's ever said. And I, what I realized was that every work I'm like making for someone and without, at that point I wasn't really recognizing that, but um, you know, like there was a sculpture in 2005 that I had made for my mom and I didn't see that until like 10 years afterwards, you know? And wow. uh, so I, with Nina show, I, be, I was like made it more deliberate where, 
Um, I had a friend, Jim Walrod, who passed away and another friend, Estelle Berg, uh, she had passed away. So I like, I was like, I want to make these not, not for like these people, like where it like supposed to be representative of them, but I wanted it to be like dedicated to them. That idea of like them having a totemic quality that it sort of embodies a spirit. And so what, for me, like including that sweater and the sculpture and sort of indicating a figure was have that sort of person, person poetic presence um, where you do feel like there's like a belief system behind what you're seeing. And instead of just, just being like, I don't care, let's put this here. And, you know, it's like there, I think we're using, um, Things like I remember there, I, I like keep like important collections to me and like they, it's just basically just trash. But like for me, like, oh my God, I found this thing and it meant this to me, you know, like. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I try to like really bring out all like the magic tones in that work. <laughs> it's in there. I mean, I, I sense that. I mean, I like this idea of a totem or and or a monument. I mean, some of your works do feel like monuments. Uh, to an idea, but it's interesting to hear there's some specific people behind them too in their memory and um, kind of capturing that is what a wonderful thing. You know, you talked a little bit about collaboration and working with a welder. I know, and I know collaboration is a, is uh, an important ingredient in your practice and how you realize these things. Yeah. Um, and, through you, I learned about this idea called the third mind that an artist that you probably admire named Brian Gisson. Is that how you pronounce his name? I think it's uh, Brian Geisen. Geisen. Uh, okay. Yeah. Brian Geisen, uh, who's a painter and a performance artist and, you know, hung out with William Burroughs. Um, can you talk a little bit about the idea of a third mind? Yeah. Uh, I definitely felt this way working in force field and working with R. Peterson and even within the studio, like the people that work with me, the, that idea that like, I'm, I'm not really good at embroidery. Like I'm okay. <laughs> and I'm not great at crochet, but like if we make it together, we could probably like make something that is better than just one of us. I, and that happened in force field where, everyone came with a certain like interest and talent and like we got to a place that none of us alone could have gotten to. And so it becomes like you're on this journey with someone, not to sound cliche, but like you're getting to, a, you're arriving at a place that you like, you kind of like, ha you can't bring all your baggage. <laughs> you, you can't like, literally you can't, you have to like put aside your ego a little bit and be patient and like let, not be right all the time, which like when you're working by yourself, you're right all the time. And so uh, wrong all the time. <laughs> yeah. You're wrong all the time and working. I think I just am more naturally like having a big family. That's sort of like the space that I gravitate towards. Like a, I think within, within my family structure, I like I'm the third and like, I like sitting back and like watching the chaos of my sister's fighting or like, <laughs> my, I just like, it's sort of like having the baseline of a band and like, I'll just sit here and just do this one chord over and over again. See if just, you know, maybe that 
can sort of hopefully it'll find its space. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But also feel like I'm, I'm adding to something, even though you, it may not be like the, you know, symbols or the, you know, like high notes, but it's like, I'm, I'm here. I want to be, I'm, it's like way, way for me to feel like meaningful in a way. So on that, like connected to that, some of your works, there's like a sense of collaboration of the materials too. You know, if we go back to the, the work in the Nina Johnson show, you know, I was looking at the, the piece, the peaceable kingdom and then in parentheses, Ox Satellite, and listeners can look that work up. But there's these like plush sewn, I'm not sure if they're sewn, but there's like these this plush stuffed line work that you're then weaving to make like a loose grid that's then stuck through, uh, looks like a, a fabricated grid made of metal, that armature. Yeah. And all these things rely on each other, not unlike a big, like a sibling and a big family kind of rely on each other to like inform each other and create context for each other. And then just to create the the system to hold everything up. I mean, I think, I mean, as an idea that's in the work itself, yeah. I don't know, is that, am I reaching too much there? Is, is there something there for you? No. And I think that like, if there was destination, it was at the time I keep talking about these, the space of utopia and, um, the first painting I responded to is Edward Hicks's Peaceable Kingdom. And so that's in the title. Um, you know, as, I don't know, it was like three, four or five, like going to the Cleveland Museum of Art and seeing this painting of animals coming out of the dark woods. And I had, I went home and had a dream as a kid and I woke up and I was like, because <gasps> I grew up, there was woods near me. And it was that I, the, I, I see it now as like, like I kept drawing, like I, I kept drawing that, that drawing too of like how humans interact with animals and like, what is the space of darkness in the woods? And it just was like something I couldn't let go of as a kid. And so with that show, I was like trying to talk about that space, but it also seeing it now too, with that painting, if there's so much about colonization. And I think as a kid, you pick up on those elements too, being like, okay, there are the white settlers shaking hands with the native Americans. Like, okay, where are those people now? And like, <laughs> like, where are these lions that are supposed to be in the woods? And um, why is this baby like climbing on the back of this wolf? And, you know, like all those questions are you're thinking about as a kid, but not like, and that they've stuck with me as a, as an adult now too. And like, my goal has always been to like get to that sort of dark kind of, psychology in a way of like that space of where you like see something but it takes you deeper and it's like a it triggers this like deeper understanding i get that like this this idea of maybe like where fantasy hits the absurd like there's like a little glitch spot in there like this idea of like fantasy and and like like a dream like utopic thing are ideas in your work for me as a viewer and also this like toggle between comfort and discomfort because some of your things are they're larger than life you know they're nine eight feet tall um and they're they're comfortable because they're plush and some areas are soft but then there's like these dark kind of cavernous areas and and, Mm. and it's interesting to hear you talk about that Mm. that painting that you saw as a kid because i'm like picking up on some some connections there and there's the the language of pattern is peppered throughout your work there's a sense of joyfulness in your work for me as a viewer and curiosity and 
dare I say fun. Like when I see your stuff, there's, there's part of me that was like, I would love to make that thing. It looks so fun to mm -hmm. make. Mm -hmm. I know it probably isn't always fun for you as the maker, but there's, there's this like, uh, there's this sense of joy in the work that I think is, uh, is present for me. Do those ideas land for you? Are those present for you? I think someone asked me like, when do you, I think a student asked like, how do you know when you're done? And like when you're making work, especially when it's intuitive. And I, I think there are oftentimes where like I'll make a sculpture and it'll be like, ha, that's re you know, and not, not have any like, not that like, ha, it's ridiculous or ha, this is absurd. But like, it, it like is giving me feedback of being like, okay, I'm actually like finding some autonomy separate from the person that made this. And like the two of us are able to like communicate now. <laughs> and so there is like this birth process, I guess. That is joyful, I think. And fun. Yeah. 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 Agreed. There's a, you know, you're real generous uh, and, and you publish your artist statement on your website, which not everyone does. Um, but I appreciate reading those things just to sort of see what people are thinking. And one of the things that's sort of up in the front is a quote from Merce Cunningham about ambiguity. Um, and just to paraphrase, a section of it is, one of the things that openness does is allow for the spectator to creep in or out and make up their own mind. Um, and that's something that, that Merce Cunningham said. And I wonder about this idea of ambiguity in your work, because while I was talking about very specific reactions for me, there is ambiguity in, in, in the work, right? These are not representational objects all the time. Sure, there's a sweater in there that we can anchor onto, but can we talk about the unknowable thing in your work and maybe other people's work? Maybe it's the magic of art. What is it about ambiguity that um, compels you to like mention it in your artist statement or, or, or mention it or list this Merce Cunningham quote? I feel lucky I got to see Merce Cunningham performance um in Miami before he passed away. And you see like um, the playfulness that exists within the structure of his work and the rigor that goes in, that went into, that is in his work. Um, but also it's just that it's, it's like so dreamy and you get lost. Like the, bo the body is this, again, like the, this entrance into this sort of like dream state that, which I don't think is like synonymous with like amb ambiguous, but it's, it, yeah, it's sort of like this unknowable place. And I found I just, that is the place where I want to be with my work too. I think ambiguity is, is a powerful idea. And, and for me, my work might represent one idea this week, but five years later it might, means something else. And I think mm -hmm. ambiguity allows for that. You know, yeah. it's interesting to hear you talk about making a work and realizing 10 years later it was for your mom or connected to your mom. Yeah. And I think ambiguity allows for that. And what an important tool to have um, on hand. Uh, color is also uh, an important piece in your work for me in terms of how you're using it in pattern. And I think I read in an interview years ago, you think of color as a gift Mm -hmm. does, does this ring a bell? Yeah, totally. <laughs> no, yeah. I mean, it's like artists that I, as you were talking, I'm like thinking about artists that, that do this, like, 
like Noah Purifoy, like seeing his work um, in the desert and like near Joshua Tree was like, or, or just like more, like I don't think of abstraction as, you know, I think as being cold necessarily, but it is that space of where you, um, it, it it's so inviting because it's like everyone is welcome, kind of it's like the door is open and a lot of ab- abstraction. And I see see that in Noah Purifoy's work and I think of like Bridget Riley's sense of color relationship and I really respond to like that rigor and but also that generosity that's there. Um I I got to see her speak too and it was amazing to hear how much the body is part of her work and like there was so much figure drawing she was doing early on as an artist that led into like the more optical work. Um and I never made that connection. Yeah, color it's such an evocative thing, right? And I and I feel how you collide so many colors, but there's an organization to it that makes sense. And I can't really describe why it makes sense, but it makes sense for me when I when I take in your work. Yeah. But then you'll interrupt that too. You'll put like a fluorescent in there or a gridded pattern in the in the in the midst of like a lot of shag, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's chaos and then suddenly order. Um, and that whiplash is really important for me. And I think the way you use color plays into that. And those are the gifts for me sometimes is that sort of like glitch in there. You've mentioned, you've mentioned force field and, and Fort Thunder a couple of times. And I feel like we'd be remiss not to, uh, get more granular on that. And maybe just for a little bit of context, Fort Thunder was a live workspace in Providence, actually not in Providence in Onlyville, Rhode Island, uh, in the you know, nineties, would, would we say what were the, what's yeah. the, what's the time span? I'm going to get it wrong, but I, I think it was 95 to 2001 ish. That sounds about right. Uh, and a group of artists and musicians lived in this space and worked in this space. You being one of them, it was immersive, right? It was like a performance space. It was a studio space. It was a live living space. It was a party space at times. Um, it was crowded with ideas and objects and dripping with information. Um, and you lived there and force field was born out of there. Is that accurate? Yeah. And, and force field was, uh, like a performance that you did with a, a few friends that you ended up getting into the Whitney biennial in 2002, which was incredible. Um, and it involves like knit costumes and music and video and performance. You know, that was over 20 years ago now. Um, and my question is this sort of like long shadow of Fort Thunder and Force Field and what survives today from that time period for you? Mm-hmm. Um, it's easy. I mean, it's sort of like nostalgia and like time travel can be problematic sometimes. But I do think there's enough power in that project, if we can call it that, in that space and the people that built it or gave birth to it. I don't know if we can even say it was built, Um, but what survives for you? I think about that time as being before social media. And I think I being like an educator now and talking about that time period too, it's um, like in, I sort of 
try to like look wider than just Fort Thunder and sort of the context of why that was possible. And I think in some ways, because social media didn't exist, I, you look at photographs from that time period and no one is has a cell phone taking photographs. Like, you know, maybe someone has a nice camera that they've been using, but like, so that there's just people acted differently in that space. And, but also just the um, Onlyville, uh, it's really poor and really under-resourced and it allows for like really um, awful landlords to like charge a lot of rent for a big space that doesn't have any heat and like um, the roof is leaking and all that stuff, which we as, you know, young white kids like from the suburbs, like thought was like so exotic and yeah, it was so, because everyone around us sort of like was literally in pain and not um, receiving services, we were able to sort of thrive. And um, so I think about that sometimes and just, um, yeah, trying to bring more account of, like there's something about ambiguity that um, I like ambigu- ambiguity, but also that there needs to be like accountability sort of hand in hand with that too. Um, I think so often people who have power um, like don't um, bring accountability to that power. And I, so I, I guess I'm trying to see things from a more uh, from that lens too. Like I, it, something I think about often, like I'll have dreams about Fort Thunder and, and I, I love the work that came out of there, but yeah, the, it really was so formative and it really was like what sort of define, helped me define who, I, how I see artwork or what it means to be an artist. I mean, I'll speak from my experience as a kid that grew up in rural New Hampshire and moved to Providence to go to school. The first time I went there, my, my mind was opened up in a way it had never been opened up before. I mean, I feel like it gave me a new sense of what was possible. And it gave me a new sense of like, you can, build your own world if you want. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can make your own rules and you can try and do it carefully and, and invite people along for the ride. Um, but I really didn't have an access point for that prior to being in Fort Thunder. So it like planted a seed for a type of ethos for me that I carry mm-hmm. with me today. Yeah. And, and, and also just to close out this section, I, I feel like I, when I see work out in the world, even now in the fantastic year of 2021 um there are fort thunder and force field fingerprints all over it and i don't only mean in art galleries or in art spaces i see it in animation i see it in shows that are streaming now um and i think for people that experience that time and moment probably see it too so mm-hmm. it's like there's these echoes that are still happening out there i don't know does that make sense for That's you That's cool yeah and i imagine you know i mentioned in my description of fort thunder that it was an incredibly cluttered space um i wonder if there's like part of you as that you've kind of like moved into adulthood and become a parent and um like that lifestyle necessarily do, isn't compatible as much as it used to be. Like, is there some sort of editing of that like clutter in your, in your mind or in your world? Like, 
does the idea of restraint or like paring down have a role right now? Yeah. But I've married someone who also likes to collect things. (laughs) And my kid like wants, like is at three years old is collect. She just brought home two like shards of bricks, brick shards. And like, it's like, I'm going to add this to my collection. I'm like, Okay, she is my child. I, okay, um, you know, one has kid like. A, sorry, real uh, quick. Kid collections are so great. They're my awesome. Son, my son uh, has a collection of like strange debris from the streets. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah. I, I get that. I'm like a scav. I don't know why I'm a scavenger, but like, I love. Yeah, I'm looking around my studio, and it's like pretty packed. But th- I think. I, I, it's hard for me to live around clutter. I, I, clutter already has like a kind of judgment to it. So, but I really do like a, a bed that's made and like your clothes are put away and like that uh, peace of mind is like really when, especially when you're a parent, that's like, that's like medicine. Let's talk a little bit about being a parent. When I had my first kid, uh, it definitely changed how I, thought about being an artist and I mean the obvious stuff is like time and energy and how that changes for someone that becomes a parent uh I'm wondering how becoming a parent and having a little person uh in your life has affected you as an artist if at all I'm so glad that I'm a parent and a dad and I remember getting advice from someone who (laughs) was such strange advice because he had like a 12 year old at the time he's like do not have kids like it, it fucks up your life. And I, I remember a collector saying like, do not have kids. Like you're not, it's not, don't teach and don't have kids. Like, and I was like, cool. Okay. Well, I'm 22 years old. I guess I won't do those things. <laughs> and like, but I'm glad I do both. Cause um, I think right now, like you're pulled in so many different directions as a parent. And that is a, that's a really hard thing for me to do. Cause I, it just makes me so grumpy sometimes. And I'm really trying to work on that, <laughs> not being grump as a, as a partner and as a dad, like I hate seeing grumpy dads and um, not that I have to be like Pollyannish or, but it's, I, I think it's just like, how do I sort of balance like being present for my family and being present for my work. And it's a, it's, it's really, it's a real challenge. <laughs> Um, to like suddenly like there's an emergency and like you have to clean up a huge mess and then all of a sudden you're fucking exhausted at 8 30 at night and you literally cannot move your body because you're 45 years old and like <laughs> yeah i've never been so exhausted i can identify with every everything you're saying um i feel like momentum is a thing that you know momentum in the studio when you have a flow going or like you have that that door opens up and you see the thing that even if you haven't made it yet but you you, you know the you the steps you have to take to get there mm-hmm. and then it's time to pick up your kid you can't follow through on that momentum um that's i think one of the challenges for me too um but you're right it's balance and and i think it's great that you mentioned like grumpiness and parenthood because i think it comes with the territory sometimes but I mean, it's work. It's work to to like find that balance and show up and be the type of 
grown up and parent you want to be for your kid and model a way of being for your kid. Um, but also like, if you think of your art and the things you make as like part of your offspring too, you got to figure out how to show up for them (laughs) as well. And that's the, that's the challenge, isn't it? Just coming home from a couple nights ago, there was a Terry Gross interview with Chuck Close who just passed. And, um, it's weird to like talk about Chuck Close knowing that he, like there's obviously like a lot of allegations against him that are really gross. And it's weird to read the New York times article as his obituary was like, yeah, he may have been, <laughs> yes, he was abusive, but maybe it was like, I don't know. So anyway, the, yeah, they don't, they didn't talk about it. Like it was facts. <laughs> I mean, these are facts. <laughs> yeah. There are actually like 18 accusations. So I listened to it. One thing that was helpful, and I think that this could apply to different artists. Um, I think the reason why I like knitting is like I I can come to this knitting machine or wherever I am with the work, and I know there are twenty three stitches, and I can just like do the twenty fourth, and I know how to build it, and I can walk away, and there isn't like that idea of reinvention every time you come to the studio, um, and I it's like I've had the hardest time to like sit down and draw the past year. And it's not that I have a block, but oftentimes I come to a blank piece of paper and I'm like inventing a world. And there just hasn't been time to do that invention. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to adjust things so that I can come to drawing in the same way that I'm coming to my sculpture and knitting. Um, and I haven't, I haven't found that yet, but <laughs> I like a grid. Yeah, a grid is helpful. You just yeah. fill in every square and then you can walk yeah. away. I'd like to talk about teaching with you. Yeah. Uh, I'm someone that teaches as well. And, you know, art is is such a malleable thing. On one hand, it can be have function and um, have utility as a, as a vehicle to share an idea or as a method for sharing knowledge. I, I believe in that as part of what art can do in the, in the possibility of art. And I also think that connects to teaching. You know, teaching is a very efficient way to share an idea and to share knowledge uh, and to open someone up to a new way of looking and potentially being. Um, so I wanted to talk about teaching with you. I, I, I know that you teach undergraduate courses in art. Is it mostly sculpture classes that you teach? It's actually like everything but sculpture. I'm in printmaking and textiles in those two departments but it, i come i'm working on a senior level so like we're working on artist statements and just sort of getting our thesis together for you know the end of the year right so it's students that are further into their art education at an art school they're seniors but you also teach high school students which is which is like a different like level of experience and exposure to art, which is really fascinating to me. Um, But, but before we talk about like how you shift between those two groups of learners, uh, I wondered if, if there was an idea or two or a way of thinking that you hope your students take from your instruction. I always thought like that you take for granted, like the education you get. (laughs) And so um, you get to see like, at an institution, how the sausage is made and like how it's actually just people that all sort of come together and decide on this is what education means. And it's nice to have, to be teaching at a high school 
and have that perspective on on where things are in some ways like it's been like healing doesn't sound like the right word but it, it's been healing in a way because um i go it's hard not to like place yourself at 16 or 17 and i see the struggles that the students have um it's not like they're struggling terribly like the art class is pretty i keep it pretty open and pretty like low stakes um but it sort of like allows me to forgive myself at that you know being a teenager and or just like see like oh wow i was a little depressed <laughs> like oh um i think i probably had attention problems like oh that's probably why i did things that way you know and i it just gives me space to like see my the start starting point of my own creativity or like how I identified as an artist in these kids. So they teach me, I mean, as you know, like teaching, like I learn more from my students than I probably teach them. <laughs> yeah. I was about to say, I can identify with, with like the learning that, that the, that me as an instructor or as some sort of teacher in front of these kids gain as I'm trying to figure out how to, how to connect with students or reframe an idea or a technique in a way that like, that particular student needs to hear it or needs it to be packaged that way. Cause you know, when you have got a group of 15 to 25 students, uh, you're coming up with 15 to 25 different ways of trying yeah. to deliver that information. Um, and that's like a big learning process for me, for sure. I try to dress well and they actually respond to that more than like any instruction that I provide. That's interesting. So can you define like what dressing well means for you? I don't know. Just like being okay about wearing a bolo and I don't know, just like being pretty free with, I like dressing pretty colorfully. And so I think at RISD, I kind of like tone it down a little bit. And like I bought some gap shirts that are like pr pretty like neutral, but at high school, I'm just like, I'm going to look like the weird art teacher and really enjoy that space. <laughs> I, I think that's great modeling, right? I mean, there's there's like a, almost like an expectation of a high school art teacher, right? But to like show students that have not been around someone that like takes, takes like some form of creative adventure or risk with their fashion and, and like how they put themselves together as a way to communicate something or to like lighten the, the space in which you're in, that's great. Yeah. You're showing them that. I guess I, I want to like think more about your high school students because uh, I'm imagining like what a, an amazing gift it would be to have someone like you as an arts teacher in high school. When I think back to my own experience, um, you know, my art teachers were more, I guess, conservative. Like they, they communicated to me that there was a right and wrong way to draw and a right and wrong way to make a picture. So I'm curious for someone like you, what sorts of projects do you give your students? Um, is there one that sticks out? I think in the beginning I had all this stuff prepared to like show them different artists and have like artists be the lead. And I like showed Joseph Albers and like color theory and talked about his his history and like there's a um, Tomashi Jackson really. Um, works with Joseph Albers' ideas of perception to talk about like 
civil rights and racism. And I, so I, I just saw like, it wasn't connecting with them and I needed to meet them where they were and talk about those issues, but in ways that, um, where they sort of came to that place first. Um, so something we did in the beginning was there's a traffic box that has been set up down the street. And so it was the idea of like, what if we were given a commission to paint this traffic box? What would it look like? And like, how do you make a template? How do you make a uh, proposal? And it was tough because they had to like measure the box. We had to make a model. And I was like, all right, how do we make a template? Like, let's figure it out together. And they kind of hated it. Um, but one student was like, you know what? These traffic boxes are neutral, but they actually affect brown and black communities more than like white communities. And um, because, you know, if you lose your license, you lose your ability to get to work. And I was like, oh my God, that's exactly where I wanted to go with this. Or we could, or we could talk about like camouflage or just like, how do you make, how do you decorate something in that's in the public space? And so every student came to it differently and I was really happy with it. But I think they were like, so when is the art starting? And, <laughs> and I was like, all right, we're just going to free draw. And then they were just like, bam, like they had all these drawings that they were just like going loose on. And I was like, oh, okay. I think they just want to express themselves. And so the later part of the trimester, um, we have three trimesters, but like <clears throat> it just giving them the opportunity to like, just express themselves was became more important in a way and all those things that I wanted to get to like happened but sort of through the back door a little bit <laughs> yeah that's amazing I, I mean I guess maybe that's what I was trying to get at earlier in my high school arts education is like the 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 idea of being expressive was not introduced to me so it's really nice to hear that you're like allowing for that to happen um, and also for just a little bit of context, maybe we should define what a what a traffic box is. Oh yeah, um, they've been set up. There are a couple in Providence where they're put up near schools to, you know, calm traffic. And so they, it's supposed to be a more neutral body. It's just this looks like a robot, basically with a window. Um, and so if you go a, literally one mile above thirty miles an hour, you get a seventy five dollar ticket in your mail. So it's so got it, a camera on it and it like yeah. takes a picture of your license plate. It's horrible, but okay. um, I mean, it slowed down traffic significantly on that road. But, um, and I think the idea is that, you know, it takes away racial bias and, and it does calm traffic. But so uh, there are just other issues that I think um, it brings up too because of its supposed neutrality. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good, good object to uh, pick apart and, and build around. But I, I, it's funny. I was like listening to, Mike Kelly lectures lately, which are kind of annoying, but he talks about um, his own education and like Joseph Hoffman being shoved down his throat and all this like sense of what provides good art. And I'm, I definitely don't bring that to my class. I'm just like, whatever you want to do. Early in the conversation, you mentioned that a collector uh, uh, gave you some advice along the lines of, don't ever 
teach and don't ever have kids. And I thought, you know, this is, I wanted to get back. I wanted to circle back to that idea and also acknowledge that both you and I have chosen to teach and have chosen <laughs> to have kids. <laughs> but where, what do you think he meant by that? I mean, he was, uh, he was a commercial, he is a commercial artist and he had kids. So it may come out of his own personal experience, but I, I think that's sort of, he wouldn't be the first one that said that. I think there was a gallerist that said that to me too, but I mean, you, you, your, your sense of your objective and your desires, um, do like suddenly, um, you know, providing for your family and making sure you can, you know, being an artist is like a totally irrational decision and, and doesn't make any sense in terms of like being a responsible parent. Plus your, your partner sees like how the sausage is made and, and that doesn't make any sense. And (laughs) so it's hard to like keep in mind where you want to go, like where this, where you, what direction you want to bring your practice to. Um, when you have so many kind of conflicting desires. And so I think that's been a big thing, just staying focused of like, all right, what do I want to accomplish with my art practice? And that brings happiness. And so that happiness will positively affect my family. Does that mean financial security? And so many times it doesn't. (laughs) And so... Yeah, then you it just you get into this like maze of like, all right, well I'll be teaching and that will sort of sustain things. And so you can see like this like continuous if you don't have these things, then you don't have to get into these like continuous cycles of rationalization. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It connects to this like pie chart of time and energy uh, and what we can steer towards. Yeah. Um it's also like I mean it's a narrative I've heard before. And I think it connects more to status, uh, you know, and the perception of an artist as this, as this person who's like 100% dedicated to the Correct. to the the yeah. concept of making art and, yeah. and living and breathing it at all times. And I think that's a little outdated, and it's and it's narrow. And yeah. I and I think it like connects to a certain aspect of the contemporary art world that you and I have like wandered in and out of. And that part of the art world isn't necessarily family friendly all the time. Um, and that's maybe, maybe something I've been thinking about and, and, and where I connect and disconnect to it. You're going to say something. Yeah. I mean, I think we're not advocating for people to get married or have kids or be heteronormative um, or even teach, but I think I'm not, I don't regret it at all. And I would do it in a heartbeat. It's just, it is really tough. Um, but it's made me a better person. So I think it's all dependent on <laughs> whoever the person is. And I, um, I look back and I'm, I wish I had children earlier and I wish I was married to my wife earlier, but, um, and I wish I taught earlier because I, they, they've like made my life feel more meaningful and substantial. That's amazing. The other thing I like to think about is, um, balance as a human being. Uh, I don't like being one thing all the time. I mean, yeah. I'm always an artist and that's always like a lens in which I'm viewing things, but I'm not making art all the time, not thinking about art all the time. Um, yeah. And I'd like to think of myself as 
a multi-dimensional person with other interests and other goals and ideas and loves and mm -hmm. interests. Um, so like teaching is a, 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 a buoy for me to latch onto when like art isn't fulfilling its promise to me, so to speak. Yeah. Or even this project uh, that I'm doing with you, Deep Color, is another buoy that I can like hang on to and catch myself when, you know, I'm frustrated with being an artist or, or a certain yeah. type of artist. Um, so I guess I just wanted to like reiterate, like having these buoys, whether it's teaching or a side project or, you know, some other thing that's like disconnected from the like the idea of being an artist and making art, I think are healthy things for us. There was a lecture with um, Andrea Chung. She's an artist, Jamaican American artist. And the first image she showed was her son. And she's like not an apologetic person <laughs> in the best way. And she's like, I show my the picture of my son because I, I was told not to have children as an artist. And so fuck you all. Uh, here's my son. I love him. He's not here. I don't have to be a mother all the time, but just going to shout out my son. First thing. That's amazing. <laughs> it was like the best thing to see. I will salute that. <laughs> and I, I completely agree. Let's talk about maintenance and care. You know, I think artists are multidimensional people with other interests beyond making artwork, or we do things outside of the studio to keep ourselves in check spiritually and physically. Um, does anything come to mind when I mention the idea of self-care in terms of activity or the things that you do to kind of escape art or re-energize for your art or re-energize for your family or re-energize for yourself? I really enjoy, there's this, um, someone who does foraging on Instagram and she is so cool. And we live next to this woods and like, as a kid, like without having a word for it, I was like, definitely interested. Like, all right, my family dies. Like, how do I survive? Kind of. <laughs> and, now, and now I have, we have a yard now and I grew some tomatoes are doing really well. Um, try not to use pesticides. So I'm like, we have a, we have one sunflower that survived out of 14. And so uh, being outside and just, nurturing plants has been like, so I, I could do that all the time. <laughs> yeah. Gardening. It. Gardening. Uh, there's some, there's something primal about gardening. It's like, I think hardwired into us. It's like a hunter gatherer yeah. thing. I mean, more gatherer, right. Than hunter, but cause you're like growing and tending to a garden. Um, but yeah, I, I, I feel that we have a little potted garden on our, balcony of our third floor apartment and just the smells that come out of it even yeah. are so kind of corrective um and calming i guess connected to this when are you most satisfied as an artist um what keeps you pushing forward are you ever satisfied as an artist i think this connects to the being a parent and like i've i've never really made money being an artist like even like even if a show sold out um which they haven't done in a long time like not to it's not a complaint it's just sort of like there was a time where i like assumed that would happen for the rest of my life and like i know it does for some people but like the 
there was so much labor that would go into my work that, um, you know, like if a sh- show did well, like half of that went into just expenses of making it. Um, so I, it's, it's like, I'm, it's that feeling of like, am I doing something insane? Like I'm, I have a kid and I have a family and, and like I have medical, you know, I have to see a doctor once a year and a dentist once a year. And like, um, how do I pay them? And it's like, yeah, just feeling like, did I sign up for something that is so irrational (laughs) and, uh, so absurd and so ultimately like destructive. (laughs) We're talking about the economics of being an artist. Yeah. It's a Sisyphean task a lot for, for a majority of us out there for sure. Um, yeah, my, my parents weren't artists, so there was like no warning, warning really. But my boss, when I was in between college and high school, like he was like, the only artist that ever made money was Picasso. And I was like, I'm going to prove you wrong. I'm going to be that artist. I know they're out there. And, and when I graduated from college, my dad was like, you know, you could consider becoming a post postman. And I was like, dad, you're not seeing me. Like I'm an, I'm an artist now. Like, and I, I think I said this to my dad, like a couple years ago, I was like, you know, that was a really good idea. (laughs) I really should have taken you up on that because there are a lot of really good artists that are postal people and, uh, I would have a pension by now. So yeah. (laughs) To bring this back to uh, the idea of being satisfied, is there is there something about like making it work that is satisfying? Not having these concerns, or or, or I just want to try and like loop it back to this yeah, idea. Yeah, no, of, like, I when th- you're satisfied. I really love. I mean, you're up against total rationality, and, but at the same time, you're like, this makes me so happy. And um, just talking to a friend about this irrationality, he's like, well. I'm sure your family wants you to be happy. So maybe like, and not, uh, you know, so just consider like that happiness as being a, an important thing that you're bringing to your family, even if it's, if it's a struggle. Um, I think it's just like that, uh, that feeling of like, all right, if I just make this, I can, maybe this one is going to be the one that is going to lead to something bigger. Like, and, but what it just means is you're, you're just going to be plugging along and like, you have, you just have to keep doing it. And even without any payoff and <laughs> it feels insane sometimes, but yeah, that's, that kind of defines what it means to be an artist right now. <laughs> yeah. 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 That's, I mean, I refer to it as the chase, you know, like this next thing is going to lead to this next thing, which will lead to the next thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's like a like a slippery track sometimes, but it is, it is a driver. And like, I wrestle with levels of contentment, um, with exactly what you described, like like the absurdity of it. Like when I do my taxes every year, I kind of like, I bury my head in my hands and ask myself like, what am I doing? So I can identify (laughs) with that. Um, on the other side, like, I think there's something pretty magical and, maybe not as irresponsible as I think to like showing my kids what an artist looks like as they live yeah. and move and make stuff. Cause I didn't grow up around that either. 
for better or worse. But um, I think there's some value in like a kid seeing someone be creative a majority of the time. I think, well, Jim Walrod was involved in like, he passed away, but um, we would talk about this too together. And he's like, dude, you invented your life. You just like everything you've done is there was no like map for it. And just don't put it down because you've completely made it up your entire, you know, you've made up everything. And I'm like, Oh yeah, that's true. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, that's, that's like a a beautiful, simple way to frame it. Yeah, Yeah, absolutely. Do you have any culture recommendations for listeners out there? Things that you've read or seen or experienced that we should check out? Um, We went to see the Virgil Abloh show at the ICA in Boston and I went in really skeptical, but I came out like a true believer. (laughs) I think it like, there was something really powerful about that show that like hits you in a way that you don't expect. Like um, just the capacity for like seeing what he does as an intellectual endeavor and like, even seeing like the prototypes of shoes that he was designing and seeing that as like, there, there's something was that just was like, so it hits you in a way that in a really powerful way. And it's hard to describe, like there's some things that are like, so kind of matter of fact and kind of like, like the Sunoco sign, like painted black and like, yeah, the world's fucked up. But like there's the subtle things about that show that I think were really awesome. What breed of tomato are you growing in your garden? <laughs> I don't even eat tomatoes, so it's like ridiculous that I'm growing it. But like, I thought it'd be fun for my daughter to pick up, pick cherry tomatoes. What's on the horizon, Jim? What are you working on? Is there a, a dream project uh, that might not even be real, but you'd love to have come together? I'm working on these pillows for Future Perfect, this um, design space in LA. And they've been really hard to like get to because it just, it's takes some like investment and material studies and like how to figure it out. But we're finally like have one panel done. It's taken like literally like 10 months to get to this point. So are they knit or crochet? What are they? Um, they're knit. And I, I got a grant through this professional development fund at RISD to work on it. So I've had people here. It's like the first time in a while that I've had some people helping assist and we're doing like a pretty straightforward crochet element that gets added to the knit and I'm like super excited about it. So it's kind of fun to do design stuff and I'd I'd like to go I'd really like to develop that side more right now. Like I have ideas for furniture and um like more interior things and um and for garments and sweaters. Like if I could make a insane sweater like for them a year and have it support my family then i'd be totally so psyched to do that for the rest of my life um (laughs) so yeah the structure for the pillow is like something i developed like 10 years ago and i'm bringing it back and it's kind of like it's really exciting jim what a pleasure it's been to learn more about your work and speak more specifically and directly about it with you. Thanks, uh, Joe. Thank you for participating in this project. It's been really great. Awesome. Thanks for having me.
We've made it to the end. A quick reminder that you can learn more about each contributing artist, find links to their online portfolios, and access the archive of past recordings by visiting deepcolorpodcast.com. Be sure to share this project within your community and rate and subscribe in the Apple Podcast directory or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening and check back soon for a new episode.